Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. It's been quite a few months since those heady days of summer when we had our last episode, but we thought it was about time we returned for a Christmas special, and it certainly is a special episode we've got for you. We've been raiding our archives at the Centre for Opposition Studies, and we've come up with a real treat. In our last episode of Opposition Cast, we spoke to Neil Kinnock's former Chief of Staff, Charles Clark, about his time working for Neil uh, in opposition. So for this episode, we're able to hear from the man himself. This was from an event that we held in April 2017 in the House of Lords, uh, which was a discussion between uh, Lord Hennessy, Peter Hennessy, and Neil Kinnock, talking uh, about his reflections on opposition and on his time as leader. But it's also quite an interesting historical curiosity because not only are we hearing about Neil's time in opposition but we're also getting some of his thoughts about the then leader of the Labour Party Jeremy Corbyn. Remember this was just ahead of the 2017 election that Theresa May uh, called and then uh, lost her majority in when it was expected that Labour were going to be roundly defeated by the Conservatives. So it's an interesting slice of of history as well. So bear that in mind as you're listening uh, to the discussion, Um, but it really is a treat. Peter Hennessy himself, of course, is an absolute giant of political history, and it's a joy to be able to present him to you in any form on the podcast. Uh, And Neil is characteristically in full flow as a brilliant raconteur. So settle back, pour yourself another drink, help yourself to some more mince pies, and enjoy the next hour as we present the Opposition Cast Christmas Special Neil Kinnock, in conversation with Peter Hennessy. Lord Hennessy, over to you. Welcome, everybody. Am I audible at the back? Yes. Hooray, good. It's a real treat to chair Neil. He and I, to some degree, have been treading the boards for a few decades now. I used to come and see him when I was a young political journalist when he was in opposition, leading up the opposition. And he would provide me with a kind of recitative in some kind of bizarre oratorio that he was living through of how it felt. And... Um, I cherish those meetings. And you're always very brave and very candid, which I know you're going to be this evening as well. Now, Neil has left a, a trace in the Oxford Dictionary of Political Quotations, quite a big one, which is quite right. And a high proportion of the quotations are to do with the problems of opposition. One of my favourites, this one's 1988. There are lots of ways to get to socialism, but I think trying to fracture the Labour Party by incessant contest cannot be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> This one is 1984, in the early days. Actually, no, it's not. It's, it's 1976, when you're having a dry run for opposition. You're speaking against devolution at the party conference. Oh, yes. Loyalty is a fine quality, but in excess, it fills political graveyards. <laughs> Quite fond of that one. The funniest one, in a way, is William Hay. This is 1999, when you were through your trials. I have a lot of sympathy with him. I, too, was once a young, bald leader of the opposition. (laughs) (laughs) But my favourite isn't in the Oxford Dictionary of Political Quotations, and I want it to be, which is why I hope he's going to say it tonight. So I'm going to try and entice him with this to start off. Neil, tell us about your midlife crisis. (laughs) Ah. Well, I must be... Something like the only person in history to be able to give a very precise date 
to the span of their midlife crisis. Mine lasted from about five o'clock on the 2nd of October 1983 <laughs> to about two o'clock on the 18th of July 1992. Uh, that was my period as leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> and parting was such sweet stuff. <laughs> this, this was there. <laughs> Where were you? Neil, tell us through the phases of opposition. I, I know each opposition span is different because the conditions are different. But there's always false hopes, there's real hopes, there's setbacks. And I think in your case, it was always two yards forward, one and a half yards back. There was, mm -hmm. there, there was never... It was never straightforward, was it? Oh, it was never straightforward. Um, in fact, I thought of uh, seeking a chair in the mastery of labyrinths. I'm, I'm certain that there's some university in the country that would happily establish such a chair. Uh, because uh, if you think of a labyrinth, which is uphill, most of the time, uh, in rain, and when it wasn't raining, it was sleeting, and with lots of uh, um, informal explosive devices laid along the pathway, then uh, I think you get a fair picture of opposition most of the time for most people. Certainly that applied to me, I think it probably applied to other people in both parties as well. And. Uh, Part of that is simply in the nature of being an opposition, and it's to do with democracy and the battle that you must undertake to win uh, broader support for your party uh, with the ultimate objective of getting enough democratic votes to end your period in opposition. That must be the abiding objective, the absolutely dominating ambition. Uh, unfortunately, there are many people, several of them in your own party, who have other ideas. Uh, I'm not sure, by the way, that this is the uh, challenge currently perceived by the present leader of the Labour Party. We'll come to him. But we'll come to him, I'm sure we will, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, for most leaders of most oppositions, of most parties, uh, there is no objective superior to ending your period in opposition. And that means that if there are resistant forces in your own party or outside the party, uh, then uh, they have to be addressed, or hopefully overcome as often as you frequently can, uh, sometimes in difficult circumstances. And the occasions on which you do overcome them are moments of joy, uh, ecstatic joy in one or two cases, which I'm prepared to regale you with. <laughs> um, uh, when you don't, uh, great disappointment, not so much for yourself, indeed hardly at all for yourself, but because you feel you've let your own side down. And uh, that is a very dispiriting experience, which again, you then have to overcome. Now you were devoted to Michael Foote, you really were, you loved him, yep. always. Did as have, did many other people. As did many other people. Did you have second thoughts about succeeding him? No, not really, uh, because by that time I'd come to the conclusion um, uh, 
the conclusion of an idea that I'd been entertaining for the previous 18 months. Partly at his instigation, uh, inst instigation, it must be said, that's the kind of guy that he was, uh, that the party was in an appalling state. Um, if it was going to be repaired, it would have to be repaired from the left. And uh, that's why I stood at a time when there were other considerable people, one of them being Roy, of course, Roy Hattersley. Mm -hmm. Another one at the time that I first thought of it was uh, Dennis Healy. And I had occasion to reflect in subsequent years that if Tony Benn hadn't gone completely off the rails, Tony Crossland hadn't tragically died, Shirley hadn't left the party, and Dennis quite rapidly aged, I wouldn't have had to have my midlife crisis um, quite so soon, or maybe at all, because I wouldn't have had to be leader of the Lib Party. I mean, any of those characters, certainly at their best, were superb people who could have led the Labour Party, and that's without thinking even in terms of John, who came after me, or Gordon Brown, uh, who was present and a presence even before Tony Blair, um, and the possibility of skipping generations and God knows what else. But there were lots of people around who certainly had the equipment to be leader of the Labour Party. Um, it's just that I had more of the kit that was necessary at the time in the circumstances, and that's why I was obliged to do it. It wasn't uh, something that I anticipated with pleasure, I have to say that. The gods of politics are notoriously wrathful, and they were really raging when you took over, because it, mm. your early phase coincided with the minor strike. Yeah. Now, that made it extraordinarily difficult for you, didn't it? Can you tell us in a nutshell why? Yeah, well... Uh, I think, again, the diary requires reference. Uh, I was elected on the 2nd of October. My first meeting with Scargill was at the end of that month. Uh, the miners were contemplating a work-to-rule in objection against, uh, as it happens at the time, uh, some uh, pay proposals that were being put forward, uh, which would have uh, worked very unfavorably uh, to people in several of the coal fields. And uh, because I thought they had an entirely justifiable claim, uh, I certainly uh, supported the purpose of the work to rule. And uh, Scargan and I had a discussion in my office in the last week in uh, October, I can't be certain of the date, um, where we discussed the tactics and I put forward the idea that what was absolutely essential so that the public comprehended the miners' case and the case for coal was that uh, coal miners in their Sunday suits should go to various places up and down the country and explain to people who had never met a coal miner why it was in the public interest for the industry to retain miners and for Britain to continue to be a major user of domestically produced coal. And Scargill thought it was a good idea. We talked about leaflets <coughs> being produced and distributed and so on. The work to rule started, and of course it automatically meant that miners lost pay from November. And that was particularly true, for instance, in the South Wales coal field, 
part of which I represented. And uh, then uh, the rumours and then the substance became apparent of uh, a hit list of 25 collieries by uh, Ian McGregor, the chairman of the coal board, uh, with the active endorsement of the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And the nature of the work to rule changed. So it became a way of resisting McGregor's hit list. Uh, events moved as events tend to do. And after Christmas, uh, when the work to rule was continuing, and lots of miners had taken significant pay hits, um, there was, erroneously as it turned out, a proposal to close without further notice Cortonwood Colliery. And uh, there was an eruption of anger against that, and the feeling that willy-nilly, regardless of any consultation processes or anything else, uh, the hit list was to be implemented. Actually, the 25 was a fraction of what eventually uh, became uh, the full ambition of Ian McGregor and indeed uh, of the Prime Minister and substantial parts of the government. And uh, wildcat action, I suppose you could call it that, started with uh, miners leaving their collieries and going elsewhere to try and persuade other miners to join them. Uh, South Wales miners notably went to the Nottinghamshire coalfield and, for instance, succeeded in talking out several pits just by talking to men in the canteens uh, about why it was their case for coal as well. And that continued until Arthur Scargill decided that he was going to replicate the Battle of Southley Gates and pick it out the pits that were still working. And so Scargill's army descended particularly from Yorkshire and in Lancashire and Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, uh, the reaction amongst the working miners and some that had withdrawn their labour was, well, nobody can tell us what to do. If we want to leave the pit, we will, but no picket is going to tell us what to do. And that's where the tension developed from. Uh, the strike spread, in the words of Mick McGahey, the miners voted with their feet. Uh, I'm not sure that was an entirely accurate description, but that was mixed description. And uh, we were plunged into a full-scale national strike in which substantial parts of major coal fields did not go on strike. Uh, now, um, I was caught in the crossfire uh, between uh, people I represented, my own family indeed, uh, and who worked in both in pits uh, and in the coke works in Aberdeen, <coughs> and uh, my support for the case for coal, and my opposition to Scargill's tactics or lack of strategy, because that was abysmally absent, and he continued to abuse the loyalty of a magnificent body uh, of workers uh, who felt desperate and were prepared to invest their trust in him. So that's how the uh, strike continued. I did, on several occasions, publicly, as well as emphatically privately, communicate my view that without a ballot, the strike was doomed to defeat. I didn't think it would be a year, by the way. Um, uh, but of course, that was uh, 
brushed aside by the leadership of the NUM, particularly Scargill, and uh, the strike just continued, which exposed us politically and exposed me too, which is one of the reasons why I regret not being much more assertive in views that I'd stated publicly, saying that the miners would go down to defeat if they didn't insist on a pithead ballot. Uh, and there was a moment when I and many other people, including a lot of miners, assumed there would be, when a special conference of the NUM was convened. The proposition was put to change Rule 50, I think it was, of the uh, Rule 40 of the NUM Constitution um, to change the requirement of a mandate from a strike from a 55% majority to 50% plus one. And everybody assumed that was the harbinger of uh, a proposition to have a pithead ballot. Uh, the constitutional change was made at the special conference. There was no proposition to have the ballot. Uh, but a lot of miners felt by then they'd lost so much, they were so engaged, uh, they were active in pit picketing, they'd taken the sacrifice of losing lots of money, so they decided that there was no reverse gear. And uh, they endured, and their communities endured, appalling privation for the following 12 months. Uh, there are whole coalfield communities that have still not recovered all these years later. And of course, uh, we took a substantial hit uh, politically. Indeed, in the 1984 local elections, uh, we got just about the worst results possible. We recovered by the following year, but uh, in the 84 elections, we hit an abysmal low. Uh, as a consequence of the way in which uh, the media and the Conservative Party managed to represent us as being unconditional supporters or at least willing accomplices of uh, the violence on the picket lines and the lack of democracy in the NUM and the uh, authoritarian stance of uh, Arthur Scargill and all the rest of it. None of which was of course true but it's perception that matters in this business, not truth. It also delayed you tackling, did it not, yep. the other great problem, which was the militant tendency. Yep. And it, it delayed you by about a year, didn't it? Yeah, it was more than a year. Um, when you consider from the beginning of the work to rule in November 1983 until the end of the strike uh, and the rumblings arising from it, and which lasted until about May 1985, uh, we lost something like 16 to 18 months mm. of uh, active focus on effective opposition. Not making an excuse, this is a reality of the times. It's a documentary, really. And it uh, delayed two things. One was, very importantly to me, the progress that we needed to make in rapid reform of several policy areas. I didn't think it was possible to secure substantial reform in every policy area uh, because here was this fragile oil tanker um, uh, limping along in the middle of the ocean uh, and an effort to turn it around too rapidly would have probably snapped it in half in a Labour Party that was only too ready to engage in schism.
So uh, we had to be careful in the choice of areas for change that we made and the speed at which we made them. But nevertheless, uh, taking out 16 or 18 months from a reform process uh, was a big chunk and it meant that we changed a hell of a lot less, both in terms of areas, portfolios, uh, subjects, uh, and in terms of dimension of change than we should have been able to do before the 87 election. The second delay, of course, was in dealing uh, with uh, the militant tendency and the ultra-left in general. Um, I wanted to take them head on in the 84 uh, party conference. Trying to do it in the middle of the minor strike would have been stupid and fruitless. Uh, indeed, it would have been counterproductive. So I had to exercise a, a quality which I didn't know I had and my parents wouldn't have recognized <laughs> of uh, patience. <laughs> and so I hung on for a year before I could really go straight at them. Uh, and there was a lot of frustration and pent-up anger in what I uh, said to them uh, in the conference of 85. And in many respects, more importantly, uh, what we did in the hours and endless hours of investigation and prosecution uh, required to throw 20 odd of them in the first instance out of the Labour Party. But that did uh, start to change things. Um, but of course, the problem, last point that I'd make, is that absolutely vital, though. Uh, contesting, conflicting with the ultra-left was. And uh, although I um, took uh, certain satisfaction from it as a democratic socialist, apart from being the leader of the Labour Party, uh, the fact is that even as people were applauding, what they were seeing was a party preoccupied with itself. And the consequence, therefore, is that if we picked up, I'm speaking fi figuratively, uh, 10 points from taking on the nutters, we lost six of those points by being to be, appearing to be self-indulgent and being more worried about the future of our party than the future of our country, which is always a penalty to be uh, paid. It was essential, uh, irreplaceable, crucial, but as we were doing it, I knew that we were only mitigating harm, not uh, eradicating it. It produced what many think is the speech of your life, though, didn't it? The mm. grotesque chaos of a Labour council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, that's Liverpool, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. Mm. I made a better speech the next day when I stuck in the scar again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have to tell you, that speech was written literally on the back of a fag packet. <laughs> I hope it was preserved somewhere where historians uh, like a written I, record. You know. Wait, somebody might have it. I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it was, even without the minor strike and militant, it would have been very difficult turning round a majority of 144 oh, in one go. Yeah. And you knew that very well, yeah? And you, sure. You, you really, though you could never say it, of course, because you can't, you did know that 87 wasn't going to be the moment of Labour restoration, was it? Absolutely. I mean, I have said it since. I couldn't have said it at the time, obviously. Um, I used the phrase given to me by Don Cannon, wonderful man, MP for Mansfield, and uh, flat made a mind for the first... 18 months that I was a member of parliament and a great, great, strong, wonderful man. Um, he said, uh, the night I was elected, actually, uh, we had a drink in 
in, uh, bon in Brighton uh, when I was elected and he said, uh, you realize this is a two innings match? And I said, yeah, if we're lucky, Don, it's got to be two innings because uh, their first innings score is so damn big. Um, so I always thought of it like that, of course, I couldn't communicate it. Uh, but that was the reality. And uh, if we'd been able <coughs> to do what I wanted to do, we'd have gained 42 seats in, uh, in 87. We gained 21. And they were 21 Tory seats with very, very thin majorities. But in this system, we got first past the post. Uh, that's the reality you live with. I mean, uh, uh, Bob, the, who you know, founder of Maury, yeah, Bob Worcester called me on the Monday after the 92 election and he said, hi Neil, uh, call the comm commiserate, excuse my accent. I said, oh, that's very kind, Bob, that uh, I know it means something coming from you, which it did. And he said, I, yeah, I also called to tell you how much you lost the election by. I said, Bob, written on the inside of my eyelids and tattooed on my heart is the figure 21. That's how much we lost by. He said, no, no, you got it. I, that's why I'm calling. I knew you'd get it wrong. You lost by 1,242 votes. Uh, and it took me a moment to really realize what he was getting at. And that was the total of the bottom 11 elected conservative majorities. Uh, I think something like 25 million people cast a vote. <laughs> we lost by 1,242. Um, and uh, that story might have been different if we'd been able to gain the 42 that I was after <coughs> in 87. But they were spilt milk. Labour, opposition figures, not just Labour ones, but Labour ones more than Conservative ones, I think, always feel that hard done by by the press and the media. Mm. It's a very difficult condition to be in at the best of times. I remember we had a seminar at the Institute of Historical Research who came and talked to when you'd finished being leader, and you said something like, you loved living in radio land, you could bear living in television land, but you couldn't stand living in newspaper land. Uh, you've got a hell of a memory, yeah. Well, it's quite a good line, actually, Neil, if you don't mind me saying Well, so. I, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, that's how I feel. And actually... Um, it's moved further since then, mm. uh, with 24-hour all-in news, and the pressure on broadcasters of all kinds uh, to take the most immediately accessible news and opinion from uh, an increasingly prejudiced press. Um, and it means that almost by osmosis, uh, certainly without them intending to uh, reflect the bias, but because they're human beings, they will use a vocabulary and get points of reference that they've taken from uh, a biased press. And even when, as I know many of them do, uh, even when they employ their resistance gear, as it were, to try and maximize their own understanding and objectivity, it's damn difficult uh, not to slip into the, the, uh, to the language being used and the terms of reference to the set. So uh, I think uh, in the years since I said that, which would have been in 93, 93 I guess. Yeah. 93, was it? Yeah. Um, 
uh, we've uh, slipped back even further. I mean, the exceptions to that rule are distinguished. Uh, I would include uh, the Financial Times, certainly. Um, uh, the Guardian makes valiant efforts. Sections of the Time do. Times do, uh, to their credit, given their ownership. Um, and some of the weeklies uh, give it a real go. And certainly there are broadcasters on radio and television who, uh, whose uh, resistance gear, if you like, is, uh, has got a higher torque than some others. But um, I, I think democracy has been... Um, it sounds a bit pompous, but I assure you I don't intend it to... Uh, further corroded by the way in which um, news coverage and opinion promulgation has uh, changed further in the years since uh, since 93. Um, now, people say that the uh, rise of social media is going to change that. I don't know if it'll change it for the better. I mean, more people can gain access to many other people and offer them refreshing candor, uh, which often includes what the Americans would call insightful analysis. I wouldn't describe them as the majority. <laughs> um, and the great danger is that people will mistake uh, passing superficial thoughts for uh, considered opinions and it makes it very difficult for people to distinguish between what is a thought worth carrying or a report worth heeding and what is just garbage. So I, you know, I sympathize with the consumers of a lot of news, but nevertheless, um, I don't know uh, what the remedy, either in the case of newspapers and therefore some broadcasting, and certainly social media is. Uh, you can't, as a Democrat, be afraid of it, uh, but you don't, as a person or an organization or an interest or an opinion with, by definition, limited resources, have the means of contesting this onrushing tsunami. Mm. And... Uh, it isn't a matter of great concern to me, except, you know, I get some fairly offensive stuff, uh, which is never nice to hear in any case. My grandchildren, I have real concerns about, even though they are highly intelligent, strong-minded, independent kids. I, I do worry about uh, where they grow up, because they're not growing up with the home service of the News Chronicle. That's right. That, that, that's a certain flavour to that sentence, isn't it? The yeah. home service yeah. of the News Chronicle. Well, you know what I'm talking about. a little yeah. palpitation here. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about the occasional ecstatic moment. I would imagine they were in the 1987-92 period. Your cheerful moments, your cheerful memories uh, of the opposition. Yeah, more. Yeah. More. Yes. Give us a couple yes. of examples. Um, ooh. Oh. Oh, this shows what a nasty bastard I really am. Um, <laughs> Charles Clark came to me 
in conference. I'm sitting on the platform. He said, I've got the results of the NEC elections. Your here. chief of staff, Charles. This is Charles, was yeah. my chief of staff, later a distinguished member of the cabinet, who should never have been displaced from the cabinet, but they are. Um, and uh, I've got the results of uh, the National Executive Committee elections here. Uh, they'll be announced at five o'clock. This is about quarter to five. I said, uh, from the look on your face, I think Ken Livingstone's off. And he said, yes. And I said, and he smiled broadly, and I said, ignominiously off. And he said, yes. <laughs> I said, give me that piece of paper. <laughs> and I could, I could see him down on the floor. I went down, and I said, have a word, Ken. So he looked a bit surprised, I must say, and came to the side, and I said, uh, I've got some really, really good news, Ken. And I think he could see what was coming. He said, uh, yeah, go on. I said, uh, you're not just off the National Executive Committee, you are embarrassingly off the National Executive Committee. It's a, it's a good day for the Labour Party. And he said, you bastard. I said, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Because, Ken, the only thing that makes you tolerable is the fact that you hate me as much as I detest you. And I think that was probably the last words I exchanged with him. I can't think why, but I did derive ecstatic joy from that. Um, uh, in the end, even though I was very weary at the end of it, I, I did enjoy, and this is pre-87, uh, drumming the uh, Liverpool militant out of the party. Yeah. Um, and my enjoyment derived, I must say, from uh, the fact that we'd had to put, rightly, so much effort into the gathering of evidence, the presentation of evidence, the tolerating of the ducking and diving and bobbing and weaving and evasion. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the dark-haired guy. Uh, what's his name? Who makes his living as a after-dinner speaker? Hutton, yeah. Um, uh, he didn't even have a guts to turn up, uh, which at least some of the others did. Um, so we had to secure a majority to consider the evidence in his absence. And we notified him, completely fulfilled the requirements of natural justice. Um, and I, I did derive some satisfaction from that. Uh, I enjoyed the 89 uh, European Parliament elections because mm. it meant that we won a national election for the first time since 1974. And we'd done it on the basis of pretty radical policy change uh, and led the opinion in the Party of European Socialists or Confederation of European Socialist Parties as it was then, a move from position where in 1984, uh, the reason why we had a separate manifesto in the UK is that I completely rewrote the manifesto that they'd agreed upon because we couldn't sell it in the labor movement, let alone in the United Kingdom. And so they said, well, listen, there's so many amendments, you better write your own manifesto, so I did. Um, by the time we got to 89, five years later, we put the draft before them, and it took them 20 minutes to endorse it. Mm. And I thought, here's the change. This is real progress. So I, I quite like that. What else? Um, oh, I enjoyed some of the by-election results. Uh, I must say, when we were getting 
gigantic swings and turning Tory majorities of 19,000 into Labour majorities of 6,000. Uh, you derive satisfaction from that. I enjoyed the, um, the May 1989 uh, executive meeting took two days to consider a document called Meet the Challenge, Make the Change, uh, which accomplished the major policy changes that I've been working for for some years past, <coughs> indeed since 83. <coughs> and we were at the position when we could write down those changes after a lot of uh, very, very thorough consideration and tripartite working parties and gone through it all entirely uh, genuine exercise in every respect. Um, even though I found it necessary to ensure that the secretaries of all of the policy review groups worked in my office. So that consequently it was a very genteel kind of Stalinism uh, because uh, I'd been through the text of every single uh, report um, burning a candle at both ends and made my amendments which were then taken back proposed by my colleagues either in the shadow cabinet or the NEC or one of the union leaders um, uh, as if it was their amendment which of course it was and uh, they were adopted so that we got by May 1989 to the position where we had a substantial, consolidated, lucid body of proposals that were markedly changed from anything that had gone previously. And they were all endorsed, including uh, moving from unilateral nuclear disarmament to working for multilateral change, uh, with the endorsement of people like, for instance, Robin Cook, my dear, indeed my beloved, um, and much missed comrade, and uh, Claire Shaw, and David Blunkett. Even though David didn't engage, he won't mind me telling you the story, in which I described as blanketry. A, a blanketism is the habit of putting forward a proposal as an amendment to another proposal in the knowledge that your proposal will not be accepted which will then provide you with the reason for abstaining on the final vote, <laughs> which you wouldn't have done because you would have voted for the proposal if only your improving amendment hadn't been turned down. And I eventually got to the stage where I'd say in the National Executive Committee, uh, David, do you want to put your amendment uh, so we can knock it down and then we can get on with the business? Unfortunately, he saw the funny side of it. Sorry. <laughs> He's got a good sense of humor anyway. Um, and uh, we had a bit of blanketry on that occasion, uh, which uh, raised the spirits. Nothing compared, since you've asked me to be a raconteur, but nothing compared in any of this with the first meeting of the National Executive Committee after the general election defeat of 1979. You may know versions of this story. Here is the truth from the horse's mouth. It was the first occasion on which the Labour Party had had to consider what was going to happen to the short money, named after Edward Short, the deputy leader of the Labour Party and deputy prime minister, 
who had, in the minority government of 74 to 79, introduced uh, a statutory instrument which uh, allocated resources to opposition parties for the purpose of strengthening parliamentary scrutiny. It's a very good thing to do. I don't think anybody, maybe a, a couple of Tories voted against it, but not many. The Tory party endorsed it, so here we were. But for the first time, Labour was to be the recipient of the, this state largesse. And it came before the National Executive Committee on a proposal from Tony Benn, who else? And the proposal was that the money should be allocated to the Labour Party, not to the leader of the opposition. And after sums had been deducted for the Ulster Unionists and the one or two Nats and all the rest of it, uh, and the Liberals, uh, that the remainder, the bulk of it, should remain with the Labour Party. Of course, that would have broken the law because the statutory instrument very specifically said that the money goes to the leader, Her Majesty's leader of the opposition, and not to anybody else. The allocation should be pro rata to the other opposition parties, and the opposition leader should decide how the money was allocated, uh, and not any political party. A row ensued, because Jim Callaghan naturally and rightly resisted Ben's proposal, so did Michael Foote as deputy leader, and in the course of the row, uh, um, Ben's argument was supported by Eric Heffer, and Heffer, in the most vociferous way, said that this was essential for party democracy and it was wrong, that so much power should be allocated to the leader of the party, no matter who it was, etc., etc., etc. John Golding helpfully said in the course of the discussion that it was all very well for members of the Shadow Cabinet, which by the skin of his teeth uh, Heffer was, being able to collect uh, money for research assistance to add to what they allegedly paid their secretaries. Now, of course, uh, Doris Heffer, Eric's wife, was a wonderful woman and really worked very, very hard very assiduously for Eric and for his constituency, Eric became outraged with the neon spectacular uh, disagreeability that only Eric in full flow could manage. So he stood up and started bawling at Golding, who reciprocated by standing up and bawling. And Golding wasn't wearing a jacket, Eric started to take his off. <laughs> so I was sitting opposite them along one of those long oak tables up in the boardroom in Transport House, it's down the road here in Smith Square, and thought, oh God, these guys have never hit anybody. Uh, <laughs> but there's going to be a scene. So I stepped on the table, jumped over the other side, I was very young and fit in those days, and I got in between them in the manner of a referee and said, hold on now boys. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No need to take this any further. You can have an argument outside, but come on, remember where you are, etc., etc., etc. Whereupon, Heffer grabbed his jacket and swept out of the room, straight into the broom cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Callahan, I'd known him for 20 odd years before then. Um, and I never saw Jim 
guffawy. The tears were rolling down his face. And Michael was helpless. The only person in the room, other than Tony Ben, <coughs> who wasn't laughing, was Frank Alone, who was the chairman of the Labour Party at the time, who, for some reason or other, God knows why, kept banging his gun <laughs> and shouting, order, order. So I wanted to envisage this scene, which got even worse when, after two or three minutes, Heffer's very hirsute head appeared from around the door of the broom cupboard. And this invited a fresh gale of laughter with, in an exaggerating fashion, John Golding lying on the table, helpless. I think that was probably genuine. And then Heffer swept out through the door. And I must say, I never had an encounter in the National Executive Committee, although there were the occasional amusing occasions that began to compare with that surface. God, it was wonderful. And it was the promise of things to come. Can I ask you, by way of a segue question to where we are now, in terms of opposition, to reflect, perhaps it's unfair, Neil, that when you look back, you burnt yourself up, literally, in the service of your party to lay down asphalt for others to make the path to number 10. John did the same. And it must be tough, that. Much as you love your party, it must be really very tough. Well, I, the Labour Party can prosper as long as it really does abide by clause one of its constitution, which says that the Labour Party will establish and maintain in Parliament and in the country a political Labour Party. That's uh, clause one. And as long as the Labour Party remembers that we exist to try and win in order to implement principles and policies, and we don't exist for any other reason, generally, then it's okay. When that is forgotten, when that objective becomes obscured by other purposes, that's when the party really starts to lose its way. We now have at the head of the Labour Party a group of people who come from the part of politics which has always given uh, higher priority to securing power in the Labour Party rather than power for the Labour Party. And the consequence of that is that the party is divided uh, especially divided between those activists who deserve the title and others who only call themselves activists, uh, and divided between those who want power for Labour at local and national level, and in Scotland, Wales, and anywhere else we can find an election to fight. Um, and those who are not moved by these Obligations. I was going to say ambitions, but actually it's a duty. It's not just an ambition. Um, and that's why we find ourselves in the state we're in at the moment. I mean, a few weeks ago, uh, a man called John Lansman, who I've known for 30 odd years since he used to run Tony Benn's campaigns alongside Jeremy Corbyn, as it happens, who somebody reminded me a few weeks ago 
was the secretary of Tony Benn's leadership against me in 1988. Uh, oh, another evening of pleasure. Um, yeah, I get 89% of the vote. I think they call that a mandate. Anyway, um, the, uh, Jeremy was there with Landsman, but Landsman a few weeks ago, uh, apparently in Richmond, that citadel of socialism, um, was making a speech to uh, Momentum supporters. Apparently there are more members of the Labour Party in Richmond, Surrey, uh, than they were votes for Labour at the by-election. <laughs> um, get forensics in there, look at that. Um, and uh, he said, he described their project and the way in which it could be distracted or diverted by a general election. Now, he must have been the first bloke in Britain to say with any certainty that there was going to be a general election in 2017. I wish I'd listened to him. I could have got a bet on. But nevertheless, he was describing a noble purpose being uh, distracted, diverted, diverted, but destructive is the word he used, uh, by having a general election. Now, uh, there are one or two other members of the Labour Party here, and I think they will share my utter bewilderment that such words could, other than in, uh, you know, satirical joke, escape the lips of anybody who's a member of the Labour Party. How the hell is an election a distraction or a diversion? Or anything other than that we're engaged in? I mean, we've got wider purposes than merely fighting elections and getting elected. This is in the Democratic Party. But um, nevertheless, the abiding, predominant raison d'etre is uh, to win elections, to secure power on the parish council uh, or in 10 Downing Street so that we can make a, an improving difference. And the idea that that gets in the way is, I mean, God knows. But that shows a different perspective. And because of, uh, I suppose I better call it an accident of history, um, people were enfranchised who wanted the satisfaction of hearing what they thought rather than for any more mature or serious purpose. So, Jeremy's there. Final thought before we open it up. Geneticists sometimes talk about an antagonistic gene. Do you think the Labour Party, as an organism, has one of these? Because uh, I remember Dennis Healy saying in 1993, he'd come to the conclusion that by the end of the 45-51 the government, when Labour had implemented the beverage report in full, actually, which was a magnificent thing to do, they'd run out of things to do that everybody was agreed upon. And thereafter, there was a propensity to fall out over something. So you can look at the Bevanites, you can look at the unilateral thing that Gates can have to fight, you can look at the post-79 and what you had to deal with. Mm. But this one is qualitatively different. This is a different, altogether different order of magnitude, isn't it, as a problem for your party, yeah. the current version. I respect Dennis on just about every judgment with the possible exception of his public expenditure white paper, uh, which I led the rebellion against. I remember uh, that night. 
Um, and March the 6th, 1976. That's right. Much, much later, uh, in a lengthy conversation, um, when we were on a, a visit abroad, uh, he said, um, the buggers gave me the wrong figures. And I said, well, you know, I, I didn't know that. Dennis, I, I just thought you were wrong, this all. He said, yeah. But um, I, I think that whilst that perspective of <coughs> accomplishing a monumental task, especially in the circumstances in which they did it, I mean, good God, <laughs> there was nothing that could go wrong that didn't go wrong. Mm. From the winter to the withdrawal of martial aid to... 47, yeah. You, you know what I mean? But they did it. And I can see why he says uh, they'd run out of business and therefore there was a turning in. I actually think he's wrong. Uh, I think that, for instance, I believe that Bevan and the great majority of the Bevanites wanted to continue along that path to enrich and uh, root the changes that had become even more acceptable uh, because they were sourced in beverage rather than the socialist tract. And uh, in the case of the introduction of welfare state and a lot of other sophisticated changes, and indeed nationalization, it was much more a case of Red Cross than Red Flag. Mm. They actually saved, in my view, the British economy and the substantial chunk of British democracy and a lot of other things, uh, as well as given, giving uh, Britain a really beginning of a new era, uh, which I know you've written about and uh, I admire the way in which you've treated it. And uh, a lot of the analysis that shows the gigantic promise of that 45 to 51 uh, period and the people who navigated it um, was a job unfinished. I can see why Dennis, who was there at the time and right at the center of things, can form the opinion that he did. I don't, I don't think he was right because there were so many who wanted to get on with their job. Now then, were key figures exhausted? I think there might be something in that. Uh, I mean, well, one of them died. Uh, Bevin, and uh, that was a desperately serious blow. Uh, and then, uh, because Clem was getting on, there were people with aspirations, obviously, uh, and resentments and rivalries grew out of the nature of politics, apart from the ideological contest between the Bevanites and the Gateskillites. That would have been enough to be getting on with. But I think the corrosion came much more from a party uh, losing confidence in itself simply because of the mixture of biology and events. Mm. So I, I think there's more to it than that. And uh, the great criticism I'd make of them is not what they lost in 51 uh, through exhaustion uh, lack of confidence, I mean they had a working majority, let's face it, uh, and, and also uh, secured more votes than the Conservatives did when they lost even. That was the level 
of support that they had. They never lost a by-election. It was quite extraordinary, but they didn't feel their metal, or at least not enough of them did, uh, to have the capacity to surge on, produce additional fresh uh, uh, accomplishments or accompaniments to what they'd already done and really take on the next big requirement which was an investment revolution in the United Kingdom, public and private sector. If they'd really bitten that off, I mean, if you read Bevan in the one book that he produced, he was making that argument, including for England's policy, by the way. I, not many people know that, but there you are. Um, and uh, not advocating nationalization left, right, and center. Indeed, he was very, very scornful of people who he called so-called socialists, who threaten all private poverty, uh, property, and in the end, end up making no progress. Um, I've had occasion to use that paragraph from In Place of Fear a few times since September 2015, but there you are. Um, so I believe from all the people that I've spoken to over the years who were there at the time, uh, as well as reading some of it, but better still talking to them, that it was uh, energy and the ideas that come, the originality, the determination that comes from energy that tapered Mm -hmm. and not the uh, fact that the job was finished mm -hmm. because it had only just started. Mm. Well, thank you, Neil. I think we can have some Q&A now. Some fascinating reflections there by Neil Kinnock on the 1945 Attlee government and uh, how it uh, ran out of steam, potentially, at that time. Um, we then, as you heard, moved on to uh, Q&A and took some questions from the floor. Um, many of those related to the uh, election that was then in the offing in 2017 um, and Neil's thoughts about uh, current news events um, at that time. Um, I won't play you all of the, the questions there, but I will uh, introduce his answer to the final question which somebody asked, which was about the uh, role of trade unions actually in uh, the Labour Party and whether it is something that uh, makes it easier for a Labour leader if they have responsible trade unions um, to work with. And in the course of his answer, as you'll hear, um, Neil does reflect on the comparisons between the situation he found in 1983 in taking over as leader um, and the situation at the time this recording was being made um, of 2017 and the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. So let's just hear that answer as a final segment. The, the, it's a very good question because the biggest, or rather, can I put it like this? In the course even of the last few days, uh, when I I've deliberately not done many interviews, but uh, the ones that I've had uh, have generally included a question asking me to compare now with 1983. And I've had to say it's much worse. And nobody has pursued that, which is fine with me. But the reason it's worth, worse is that with some notable and hugely valuable exceptions, the trade union movement is obviously more concentrated and either less political or more willing 
to embrace an ultra-leftist stance than was remotely the case in, uh, in 1983. Uh, before the 83 election, uh, John Golding and some other people in the trade unions and in politics, including myself, Michael Foote, had John Evans, had managed to put together an alliance of trade unionists and uh, people from affiliated societies, uh, which worked very publicly as a network, and it changed the balance of power in conference voting, and therefore in the election of the National Executive Committee, so that Michael Foote had people that he really could work with for a couple of the years of his leadership. And that's why I say without any exaggeration that between them, Michael Foote and that grouping of the trade union leaders of that day saved the Labour Party. I mean, people very kindly uh, give me that accolade. Actually, it was saved uh, and surviving before I became leader. Uh, the survival had to be turned into something else. That was my job. And then it was Tony Blair's job to get it elected, but uh, as that turned out. But we are not in that position now. Uh, and there are unions, community, uh, the shop distributor and allied workers, the GMB, and a couple of others uh, that really do comprehend and try to abide by that clause one of the Labour Party constitution that I referred to earlier on. Others have got their own policy positions uh, under the influence, of course, of a particular kind of leadership. And it does mean that as yet, but this is the one that really could change in the coming weeks, as yet, uh, there is not a sufficiently solid base amongst the affiliated unions to say to the leadership, change must come. Now, the nearest we've seen uh, that that's been approached is in statements from uh, McCluskey, the leader of Unite, saying uh, Jeremy's got to be given, well, I think he started off by saying a year, and then it became 15 months, but certainly it's a measurable period of time. Uh, what McCluskey will do at the conclusion of that year or 15 months or whatever it is, I really don't know. Uh, and I don't know what difference his re-election, by a relatively small margin, uh, will make to his disposition so far as the Labour leadership is concerned. Uh, and these balls are still up in the air. Nobody can be certain about these things. All you can be certain about is that this is not 1983. It's worse. And if the trade unions, not just at national level, but at regional level, which is crucial, and district level, and of course there's so few now in big plants, because all of that structure has changed massively, as everybody knows, but few have properly recognized the meaning of it in the years since 83. Um, it means that even though the union movement is smaller, uh, they are still absolutely rightly in my view, uh, a great keel 
for the Labour Party of people who live in the real world. And uh, I just hope that they will, as in 83, uh, exert uh, the influence that they're entitled to exert and in the national interest, I mean the national interest, must exert uh, on the direction of the Labour Party. So um, I hope that that turn of events is going to come about. I frankly work for it. Uh, but at the moment, we're a distance away from him. Some rather sobering remarks by Neil Kinnock then as he surveyed the state of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn in the run-up to the 2017 general election. As I say, something of a time capsule that, as we got an insight into some of the prevailing thoughts as the Labour Party prepared for what they expected to be a crushing defeat, uh, which in the context of the uh, actual result uh, took many by surprise. Nearly five years on, of course, uh, in the post-Corbyn era, things perhaps looking rather different, and we'll return to look at that and other issues in the next episodes of Opposition Cast that will be coming your way in the new year. But in the meantime, it's been a real joy to be back with you for this festive special, and I hope you agree it certainly was special indeed. My sincere thanks to Peter Hennessy and Neil Kinnock, two of the absolute greats, for joining us at that event, and I'm delighted to have been able to bring you that discussion on the podcast. As I say, we will be back for uh, another run of episodes in the new year, and I'm looking forward to that. I hope you'll join us for those. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so that you're notified when those are uploaded. If you haven't listened back to previous episodes, then do so. And if you want to get us a Christmas present, then please make sure that you have given us a positive rating and shared the podcast uh, with your contacts and friends and other people who might wish to subscribe. It only remains for me to wish you a very Merry Christmas this year, however you're spending it in these uncertain and difficult times. And let's all hope for a better new year in 2022. Thanks so much for listening. It really is appreciated. Look after yourselves, and I'll be back with you again soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net.